Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Welcome to the John Solomon Reports podcast. Today, we have a special interview with our own JTN reporter, Daniel Payne. He's done some amazing work covering COVID and the elections, so he's going to talk about those with us today. We've got one of the best reporters that Just the News has ever had, Daniel Payne. He's done some great work on COVID. He's done some amazing work on election, and we're going we're gonna to talk about those issues a lot tonight. First, Daniel, why don't you just say hi to everyone? Folks, it's good to be here. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here and talking with you all about um, a bunch of great stuff we've got lined up. And uh, I'm glad we can meet face to face. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to share what we got. That's awesome. And we're, uh, again, in our brand new TV studios in Washington, D.C. This is exciting. So behind me is where you see a lot of our TV shows every day on Real America's Voice, one of our growing outlets for just the news news. Uh, and um, so uh, glad to join you from that. Awesome. I want to thank every person that's on this meeting line tonight because this club isn't just about getting together, though that's my favorite part of it. But every dollar that you give to us as a subscription not only gets you those dancing ads off the screen, which we're glad to do, but it really goes towards the journalism that we try to do when we file the FOIA lawsuits that elicit new information when Daniel Payne can get these great interviews and these great uh, new documents uh, all of that is coming from the great subscription revenues that you have so generously donated. So we want to thank you. Uh, uh, Daniel Payne is living proof of where your your money goes to. 100% of it goes to journalism. And uh, I think you'll see today why we're so proud to have Daniel and our family. So what I thought we would do for today, a little bit different. Um, I'm going to just go right to a little bit of q and I think there's some really amazing moments going in the COVID-19 pandemic there's sort of a reversal of all the panic, and we're getting to a moment where normalcy may be near. And as that normalcy approaches, I think we're learning a lot about the things that likely were wrong in the early pandemic response. The public health officials who may have blown the whistle the wrong way uh, suggested the wrong solutions. And uh, Daniel has done more than anyone inside Just the News to chronicle that. Early on, Facebook would try to... Um, uh, censure a lot of his amazing work saying, you're not towing the line and therefore we can't let your stories be seen. God forbid Americans see what you are. Now, those stories that early on were censored are the mainstream conclusions of the um, COVID-19 review panels, the White House panel. So he was on the cutting edge and they tried to cancel culture, but because of your great reach as readers of Just the News, 
They couldn't silence his great reporting. And today, uh, a lot of what he reported six, eight, ten months ago is now the conventional wisdom. At the time, there were a lot of people in the public health sector that were shooting at Daniel, not the experts, not the people that really prepared for pandemics and knew, but the so-called experts at Facebook or Twitter or in some of the political groups that tried to politicize uh, COVID. So it's just an amazing thing to watch where we are. And I think maybe to start, Daniel, uh, uh, again, thanks for joining. As we look back now, it is now April 19th. We are in the, what I would say, the uh, 13th official month of the pandemic. What is the one conventional wisdom that exactly a year ago was being frowned upon and said, no, 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 that now even the Fauci's of the world and others agree, yeah, that's the right way we should have done it. What's the biggest evolution in the public health response to COVID that you've been able to chronicle? You know, I, I think that the, the biggest turning point we're seeing right now is that, that, that everybody, uh, uh, you know, every, every public health official, every government leader seems to be, at least in the U.S., uh, seems to be moving uh, pretty strongly away from, from lockdowns. Like, you know, as you said, uh, you know, this is kind of the 13th month of this whole mess, uh, you know, where it really started up here in the U.S. It was March of 2020 when, you know, pretty much the entire country locked down uh, for, for you know, started just a few weeks and then turned to a few months and it was indefinitely. Um, and what you're seeing now is, uh, you know, really with a few holdouts, uh, most leaders in the U.S. are, are signaling that they do not want to go back into lockdowns and that they do not intend to. Um, you know, most prominently what we saw in the past week is New York Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, saying that New York will open up uh, July 1st was his plan. Um, now, he says this because of the uh, the high vaccination rates in that city and the, the good numbers that we're seeing coming out of there. And as you know, New York City used to be the epicenter uh, of the pandemic here, and uh, the numbers have been very favorable lately. Um, and and so, but, but what you're seeing is that, uh, you know, leaders like de Blasio, who even a few months ago would have been reluctant to, to you know, give a date for when uh, the city and the state might reopen, uh, so many of them are, are moving away from that. And I, I think that the reason for that is what we've seen over the past year um, it, and what so many have come to realize if they didn't know it before is that, that lockdowns uh, almost certainly are far more trouble than they're worth. Um, that the amount that they actually do uh, stop the spread of COVID is very debatable. It, it may be negligible relative to the significant adverse effects of lockdowns, you know, with uh, lost jobs, closed businesses, closed schools. So I think that's the biggest shift we've probably seen over the past year is that, um, you know, this, this paradigm that sort of seemed permanent uh, in March of last year and into April uh, is now something that, that is becoming something of a four-letter word uh, among what were its biggest proponents. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, there was the mask, don't mask, social distance, no social distance, do social distance. Um, we learned something in the last week that I don't know if a lot of our uh, uh, attendees tonight have heard, but MIT did an engineering study on the impact of uh, social distancing. And what did these the best, brightest engineers at MIT conclude about the social distancing regimen that we've all been following for the last year. Yeah, what they found, these, uh, these two, like you said, an uh, engineering, engineering uh, professor and a mathematics professor at, um, at MIT, what they found when they, uh, when they ran the numbers and did a few models was that, uh, you know, uh, social distancing has also been one of the, the kind of main uh, uh, features of this pandemic where we're told we have to stay, uh, you know, six feet, maybe farther away from people at all times in an effort to prevent 
uh, COVID from jumping from one person to the next. And what these scientists at MIT found was that when it comes to indoor spaces, masked or unmasked, uh, depending on the amount of time that you spend indoors, it really doesn't make a difference if it's, as they put it, six feet or 60 feet that the, the uh, potential for transmission, they argued, uh, is, is effectively a matter of time and not so much of distance. When you have air circulating in a closed space, if uh, you know, everybody's eventually breathing the same air particles, then eventually that six feet or 10 feet or 12 feet is, is going to collapse to nothing effectively. So wow. th- they kind of uh, threw a lot of cold water on what, again, has been very conventional wisdom you know, over the past 13 months that this you know, uh, six-foot distance is going to be what saves everybody. They demonstrated that that's really not the case in many, if, if not most cases, indoors. Yeah, what I looked at, uh, the physics, I think what we learned about this is really the thing we've learned about every viral uh, uh, respiratory illness of the last century is viral load is really what gets you sick. If you're exposed long enough to the virus, whether you're 500 feet away or a uh, foot, eventually you create enough viral load in your body that you become infected. And if you don't, then uh, you, 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 you know, have a good chance of, of escaping any real serious uh, harm. The uh, a secondary aspect of this has been early on, there was all of this extraordinary panic that people who were asymptomatic uh, were uh, carriers that were, you know, getting everybody sick. As we look back at that now, what have we learned about asymptomatic transmission? Yeah, the funny thing about that, John, is that we've learned very little. And, and, and what that, uh, you know, actually indicates is that there was very little evidence uh, to support that contention in the first place. Now, you know, uh, respiratory viruses, they can all transmit asymptomatically. Influenza can do that. All the other ones. Sure. This was not uh, an unknown phenomenon prior to last year. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out, there was major fear. Uh, you know, starting in about February or March of last year, that the principal driver of transmission in this pandemic was asymptomatic people spreading the virus. You you catch the virus, you don't know you're infected, you don't have a fever, you don't have a cough, and you go into a restaurant or a movie theater and you're just infecting everybody within, you know, five or six or three feet of you. And that was what drove so much of the lockdowns and what drives the masking measures even today. Um, but what we've seen when we reviewed the data and when scientists have conducted studies and done meta reviews of you know, various investigations into this question is that there's very little evidence to support the contention that asymptomatic spread is a major driver of this pandemic. It, it appears to be actually very low. Now, the caveat there is that it's only been a year. These studies take time. They're complex. It it's, can be hard to nail down anything certain in that amount of time. But what we have seen is multiple scientists and epidemiologists and researchers saying that so far, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence in favor of mass asymptomatic transmission is very low. And in fact, I think for the most part, the only instances where there have been claims that asymptomatic spread is a major contributor to the pandemic is from theoretical models rather than, uh, you know, investigation of real world data. So that has been something that has surprised a lot of people, uh, you know, over the past several months. It, it really has. And I think as we look out, all of the assessments of February, March, April of public health officials in 2020 versus 2021 are so vastly different that we're going to have to go back and find out how after billions upon billions of dollars, we got so many basic things wrong. It wasn't like we weren't preparing for pandemic. We had every reason 
to prepare for uh, a decade because you know Barack Obama was very concerned about pandemic. George W. Bush, before he left office, created a pandemic task force. Uh, we had a couple. H1N1 was a big one. Now, as we slow down, uh, this phenomenon uh, uh, is that it doesn't appear that the advice we considered during the 10 years as we were getting ready really got followed. We got into this panic mode and the playbook got thrown out about a year ago. And I know you've talked many times, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford University, who is really one of the most uh, respected uh, infectious disease experts in the world, not just yeah. in the United States. And you quoted him many times. He's part of the Great Barrington Declaration. I had him on my podcast a few times. He kept saying, I don't understand what we're doing. This is like last spring and summer. We have a playbook. Protect the vulnerable and let everybody else get back to no- normal uh, procedure with the precautions they need to just make sure that you don't get, get uh, make it worse. It's that simple. And we did the opposite. We endangered the vulnerable. We sent COVID into the nursing homes, and then we locked down people who were less likely to get it. Um, I think I saw a tweet the other day that said that now, year to year, uh, that the um, this uh, particular COVID pandemic now, the hospitalization rates are pretty close over a course of a year to what the big flu pandemic, I think, of 2015 was. Um, is it now that this thing has kind of leveled off to what people Jay Bachataria always thought it would be? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you point out the, the earlier flu pandemics. If you look at coverage from uh, the kind of severe years of, uh, I think, 2017 and 2018 were pretty heavy right. years, you see headlines that are almost indistinguishable from those today. You had hospitals in, you know, Los Angeles, in Texas, in New York, setting up uh, field hospitals, you know, field tents to handle an, an overflow of influenza patients. So it, it, it does happen. It's not something that's unheard of. But as you noted, uh, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya is, has, has uh, been one of the relatively few number of public health officials who, who have pointed out that we kind of threw out the playbook. Uh, you know, starting last spring, that we we sort of discarded years of of uh, of pandemic uh, you know knowledge and and foresight uh, in favor of something much more radical. And um, I, I think I think that we are getting to the sort of management level that uh, he and and several others have been advocating this whole time, which is a more sensible, targeted approach to. Uh, as you said, protecting the vulnerable, protecting the oldest and the sickest in society, prioritizing them in many cases for vaccines and letting more and more, uh, you know, uh, healthy younger people uh, go out and sort of live their lives as normal. So uh, it's taken a year, but it does seem like more and more authorities are coming around to that vision, which, again, was kind of common sense before 2020. Yeah. And it's interesting in 17 and 18, no one was proposing that we lock down the country. It's fascinating. The um, the as we get further into the armchair quarterbacking, and there will be significant armchair quarterbacking, uh, one of the things that has flipped on its head was back last summer and fall, it was Donald Trump and Republicans saying, vaccinate, vaccinate. The quicker we get the vaccination, the quicker this over. And Joe Biden, the Democrats, like, I wouldn't trust a, uh, a Donald Trump vaccine. That's not the way to go. We got we to gotta keep flattening the curve. Um, that has completely flipped. If you watch the president's speech last night, he was basically taking credit for the vaccines he was impugning last fall. Uh, at the end of the day, was the vaccine really the only thing that was going to get us out of the nosedive that we we put ourselves into starting in April of last year? 
You know, I, I think that that uh, you know whether or not uh, you know what, what effect it was going to have on the the uh, you know the course of the pandemic, and it does appear to have had a significant effect in, in the places where it's been widespread, such as Israel. Uh, their numbers right. are incredibly low, and they've vaccinated a significant portion of their population. Eighty percent now. Exactly. Um, and, and so they've had a lot of success. Uh, a number of other states have had big success. Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis down there, prioritized vaccinating the elderly and vulnerable. They're displaying good numbers recently. So that has been a huge part of it. And it's been a huge part of it uh, since about a year ago when, when people began discussing, um, you know, what, uh, what was necessary to get us out of this pandemic. But, you know, ultimately, the, the sort of situation we find ourselves in where, uh, you know, we we've had kind of a uh, arguably a stultified economy in a lot of ways for the past year. Uh, we've had people who are very nervous to to get out and, uh, you know, live their lives as normal. And we're still seeing that in a lot of cases with uh, high vaccination rates. We still have people insisting that you need to wear masks outdoors in parks who say that, you know, it's not time uh, to open up, uh, you know, sporting events and restaurants and other venues. So, you know, in, in addition to the relief that the vaccine brings, what I think we're going to have to see, you know, starting in the near future is is people beginning to, uh, you know, be determined to return, return to normal life, that it can't just be, uh, you know, something that they wait for that happens, that, uh, you know, that that has to be the major shift uh, moving out of this is people have to accept that it can get better. Yeah. And I think yesterday, Jay Bhattacharya was on our site. I think we picked this up from somewhere else, but he said, what I'm worried about is we've created a, a pandemic of uh, hypochondria now, which is people, even though the medical signs are good, uh, you can take your mask off if you're double vaccinated outside, the CDC says, and you're seeing Israel and, and, and places even here beginning to rescind in their flow of, of disease and hospitalization and death, that people are still in that panic mode. And I think one of the things I've heard, you know, a real life example, I, I had to go to a, a, a dinner last night. And when I was waiting outside the block, I was with just two people. We were far apart from each other. And I didn't wear my mask because I'm double vaccinated. I've been vaccinated for over a month now. And and someone came up and started yelling at me, put your mask on. I'm like, I don't have to. And and I'm double vaccinated. It doesn't matter. The CDC says no. I said, the CDC said this week you can go without the mask outdoors if you're separated and double vaccinated. He says, I don't care. The CDC's never been right about anything. I'm never taking my mask off. And I think that one of the things that Jay Bhattacharya got at this other day is that because these public health officials, particularly Anthony Fauci, flip-flopped so many times. Now, when we really can maybe let our hair down and our mask down, people have been through enough of the roller coaster. It's going to take them a long time to trust the advice they're getting now. Is is that, a, you know, are we going to have this sort of Stockholm syndrome effect for a while in, in the pandemic? You know, I think we're seeing that, John. And some polling, you may remember that we ran at Just the News, indicated that I believe a majority of Americans were prepared to wear their mask, you know, after the end of the pandemic. However, that's eventually yeah. measured I they for six months to, even. Yeah, if I remember. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And and that's kind of a stunning number when you when you consider just how unpleasant wearing a mask is and, and how desperately we want to get them all off. And I think that, um, yeah, over the past year, 
due in no small part, like you said, to the really shifting and unclear and flip-flopping guidance from public health officials on, on major issues, not just, you know, minor directives or, or, or guidance notes, but, you know, significant issues like, like lockdowns and like masks and like distancing. Um, even now with, uh, you know, vaccines ramping up in so many cases, uh, individuals like Fauci and other public health officials are, are, are signaling that, you know, these these uh, mandates and these directives aren't going to change anytime soon <laughs> that, uh, you know, you, you maybe you can go without a mask outdoors, but you're still going to have to wear a mask for the foreseeable future, even if you're totally vaccinated. You know, people get confused in those circumstances. They're not sure what to believe. And, you know, the one thing that's probably most comforting to them is the one thing they can control, uh, which is, you know, having a mask on their face and staying apart from other people. So, that's going to be a really, you know, all the data we have, all the, the, the information that we've seen come out of this pandemic uh, really shows that that well after the virus has receded and it's, you know, it's become maybe a background threat at best. We're still going to have so many people who after the past year are, are, are going to struggle mightily to resume daily normal life. That's interesting. Uh, Robert Lewis is on, and we're going to get to questions in a second, but Robert's been on some of the earlier panels. Always got great questions, but he said, it takes 21 days to develop a habit, and we've had people wearing masks for 14 months, so good luck getting them to take them off. People are too afraid. I think that's exactly the phenomenon that Jay Bhattacharya was talking about, and certainly that you so well articulated. Now, folks, we're going to turn to your questions in a little bit, so if you want to do a question, go into the comment section, start firing off. In about five, 10 minutes, we're going to start running them out. Hopefully, we'll answer some of them before. Then if not, we're going to start taking them live, and we'll go as long as, as you have questions. But uh, remember to go there. I want to turn to another subject because of all of the failures that are now most apparent, the, the lockdown states of New York, New Jersey particularly, Michigan, uh, had two things. They were locking down the most healthy, and then they sent the elderly back or, or the infirmed back into nursing homes when they were COVID symptomatic, clearly a violation of the playbook we always had. Uh, but then there was a cover-up for a long time. And for about six months, the, the states that killed the most nursing home patients, and I use the word killed because the decision to send them back was a lethal decision. It's not in dispute anymore. Uh, they were getting all this glory. I mean, heck, one of them won an Emmy, right? I think Cuomo, Cuomo won an Emmy for and maybe it was for pretending he had the best policy. I don't know. We'll see. But the media seemed to celebrate the wrong approach and denigrate the right approach as we got into this. And the consequence was lots of elderly people died. I think, you know, 40 percent of all COVID deaths in America were, in, were, were people in nursing homes. Um, describe the dynamic of the get it wrong governors who then covered it up because right, Whitmer and Cuomo still are having a hard time getting us the truth on this. And the media reinforcing that behavior when actually the experts are saying, no, that's not the right behavior. How did that dynamic come to be? Well, you know, in the earliest days of the pandemic, there was major fear that hospitals were going to be overwhelmed by a crush of COVID-19 patients. Um, and, and in particular, that not only would the hospitals be overwhelmed by those patients, but that they would drive out other patients who, who needed to be in there, who were in there for emergency treatment or other types of, you know, uh, disease treatment. So there was this major rush to clear as much hospital space in as quick amount of time as possible. And one way that numerous governors did that was they directed that nursing home patients, nursing home residents, 
who went to hospitals for, uh, you know, to be treated for a case of COVID-19, once they were stabilized, even if they had tested positive for the virus and, and might still be carriers for it, they, they were to be discharged and nursing homes could not turn them away solely on the basis of, of them having had COVID. So what you got in a lot of cases was, uh, you know, nursing home residents coming home from hospitals still sick with COVID. Um, and nominally, these nursing homes were supposed to separate these patients and keep them apart from others. But, you know, these are cash strapped facilities in a lot of places. They have limited resources. They have limited space and they couldn't do that. That's and right. so that's what you saw was in a lot of these states, major mass death at these nursing homes. You know, uh, uh, people dying in the dozens over a course of several days or weeks, all because of this you know, very significant fear of overwhelmed hospitals. Yeah, it's remarkable. And uh, and, you know, there's. Uh, Whitmer continues to deny uh, the data, uh, making it public. And so you've got a couple courageous journalists in Michigan that have sued to release that. We'll eventually get the data, I believe. Hopefully we will. Uh, Cuomo, it just keeps getting worse. I believe today there were new reports that what they admitted to a month ago, which was pretty bad, wasn't as bad as it really was. Um, why hasn't there been a larger political consequence to Andrew Cuomo yet? Do you think the legislature, impeachment, uh, criminal investigations, that there'll be some consequence for Andrew Cuomo? Or does, does he skate uh, because of the Democratic majority in the state? Yeah, I mean, the politics in his state, at the very least, are on his side. Now, he's gotten a lot of pushback for the sexual harassment allegations uh, that have been leveled at him in recent months, but not so much for the, as you pointed out, lethal nursing home policy that he ran. I would imagine that he's probably going to, uh, you know, uh, be able to skate by this pretty well. Um yeah. But uh, one thing that, that's worth pointing out that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, readers and viewers might remember is that, you know, at the time that he was, uh, uh, you know, engaging in this nursing home policy and, and, and running his state in such a way that we now know his administration was engaging in a cover up, um, the media was significantly piling on. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, for having exactly. opened up his state, you know, well above the what conventional guidance was, well, well, uh, you know, ahead of what conventional guidance was at the time. So, you know, as uh, as Cuomo was, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of skirting around this and kind of uh, uh, getting away with uh, with this policy that should have been under an intense amount of scrutiny, uh, scrutiny, there was you know significant attention and criticism directed at the Republican governor down south and. You know, everybody just kind of missed this major scandal in New York up until just a few weeks ago, really. Yeah, it's remarkable. And I apologize for being rude and being on my phone, but there is some breaking news. I'll give you it. It'll be up on Just the News in a second. But there's been some form of a deadly episode in Israel at a major religious ceremony. It appears to be a stampede, but wide, uh, widespread reports of death and, um, and injury there. So where that just came across my phone was making sure our fast file team is on top of it. You got it first here, but I apologize for being rude. Just want to make sure we kept you up to, uh, up to date. We're going to turn yeah. to those um, questions in just a second. There are a lot of great ones I see rolling in here. Uh, I wanted to turn to something that came out in the book released uh, in the last few weeks called the Fauci and bargain. And this is uh, a group of writers that really, I think took the time to take the drone up to 30,000 feet and kind of look at where did this go off the rails? And they make the argument that the tipping point was uh, between March and April when public health and President Trump and everybody said, hey, we're going to take 15 days, lock down the country and try to uh, flatten the curve. By the way, that is a textbook thing. 
if, if you start to see a rapid growth of flattening the curve strategy works, if you don't flatten it in two weeks, the playbook has always said, you've lost control, but then you got to go to mitigation. But instead of going to mitigation after the 15 day, we went to that we're going to take 30 days to slow the spread. And that's not ever been in the playbook before. And the authors of that book said that was the tipping point. That's when we went from the playbook to a permanent lockdown society for a year, economy gone, uh, children out of school forever. Um, as you look back, you know, because you did all of this work so well for us and always was on the front end, um, that was, you agree with the book assessment that that 15-day flatten the curve to 30-day, which becomes a terminable um, uh, slow the spread, is what gave rise to the lockdown society? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and you know, we, we watched that play out in real time uh, in March. There was, uh, you know, this move to shut down very temporarily uh, that turned into maybe a month-long thing with plans to open up by Easter. Uh, and right. right around that time is when uh, governors uh, began announcing, you know, indefinite closures. You just saw, uh, 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 you know, videos and images and news reports of Chinese authorities, uh, you know, welding people in their rooms, their houses, uh, you know, locking people in their, you know, homes indefinitely, uh, you know, spraying streets and streetcars down with uh, disinfectant. And I think that greatly alarmed a lot of leaders, particularly in the West, Uh, you know, starting in Italy, moving throughout the rest of Western Europe um, into the U.S. You can kind of trace it on a timeline throughout the early spring into March and April and see how uh, this great alarm over what appeared to be a major catastrophe in China compelled a lot of authorities in the U.S. to shut down when, you know, their cases were very low. Uh, hospitals weren't anywhere near overwhelmed. And yet, you know, the shutdowns happened, I think, because there was just a great deal of fear, you know, coming out of China and coming out of the early states that followed China's lead. So that's something that's, that's going to have to be, you know, studied and examined and investigated, I think, for years to come to get a full picture of just what happened. Yeah, there has to be learnings in the news media profession, too, because the news media got this wrong, like it got Russia wrong and many other things. David Muller has a great comment. It's not a question, it's a comment, but I just want to do it because I think it sinks exactly where you just came from there, Daniel Payne. Plausible deniability was the CCP's greatest weapon. Panic and not using science was what got us here. Debate is what gives us truth. And I guess the lack of debate, the censorship, kept us from getting to some truths until much more recently. Does that seem to be, a, it seems like David's pretty perceptive here, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, I don't know if you uh, uh, spoke about this when I was in uh, Whiteout Land there a few minutes ago, but um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we had a great report at Just the News uh, uh, last year, late last year, about mm-hmm. um, PCR tests, polymerase chain reaction tests, which is, uh, I think, the most widely used test to diagnose cases of COVID-19. And what we noted is that these tests, which are extremely sensitive in a lot of cases and can pick up you know, mere fragments of the virus rather than an actual infection, we said that they can, uh, uh, they have the potential to return false positives. And we got dinged and penalized by Facebook fact checkers for using the term false positive. They took issue with that and said that was wrong and they censored the post. They wouldn't let us share it, I think. Well, lo and behold, a couple months after that, (laughs) 
The World Health Organization comes out with a warning to health authorities saying PCR tests have the potential to return false positives. They use that word exactly, false positives. So uh, what you have seen is, you know, so much early up front, so many, uh, you know, reporters and journalists, you know, trying to cover this, uh, you know, so much information and so much unknowns fairly and coming to what ended up being the correct conclusions, uh, but getting censored for it nonetheless. And, and that is something that I think has pre- prevented a ton of meaningful and important information from getting out over the last year. Such a great example. I remember that one painfully because um, uh, we knew what we were reporting was 100% right. And when the medical establishment caught up to us, there's no uh, correction. There's nothing we can get back from Facebook. They took that dialogue away from our readers for two months. And it's, it's shameful. And at some point, there has to be a penalty. And I think we're, we're beginning to look at how do we penalize the fact checkers who are now the sometimes fake gatekeepers of truth on social media. Uh, a really great and important thing. And we're going to get the question. I have one last one that I want to get off my plate. And I actually see it in the lineup here, so maybe we can answer it and save some of the folks of asking it again. Um, the Wuhan virus origins. We've gone from, that's a conspiracy theory, and some medical experts writing a letter saying no basis for it, to you getting FOIA documents showing that those very scientists who wrote that epic letter, I think it was in March of 2020, saying no basis to that Wuhan theory, saying, hey, there's a lot of basis here, we just can't acknowledge it, so let's write this paper. Um, tell us the suppression tactics that some of the public health officials gave to protect China of that possibility. And now the prevailing thought of the ODNI, uh, the former CDC director, the current intelligence community, uh, how far has that evolved? Yeah, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, I think the the most prominent uh, uh, promoter of the, the possibility that this virus escaped from a Wuhan lab, from a, a Wuhan China lab, was President Trump. Um, uh, who, who, of course, at the time was uh, was pilloried in the media for suggesting such a thing. But, you know, th- there's been a, a, a great deal of, of reason to believe that that may have been the case, that this virus, not necessarily that it was man-made or bioengineered in any way, there, there isn't any evidence uh, to, right. to support that, but that it was part of, a you know, just a routine series of coronavirus experiments taking place in this high-level CCP lab, uh, and that it leaked from, you know, uh, an errant staffer or, or some sort of containment breach. Um, and there was significant effort to cover that up, uh, you know, in the, in the earliest days and months of the pandemic to suggest that, no, there's no way this could have emerged from a lab, uh, that, it, you know, it, it must have jumped from a bat or, or a pangolin to, right. you know, one human and then two and then five until the, you know, the outbreak finally occurred. Uh, but there, there, there really is plenty of reason to think that, that the lab may have been the origin of this virus. And now you are seeing that, you know, after a year of, of sort of suppression tactics and denials and, and, you know, turning people away from that possibility, you are seeing the ODNI, you are seeing the State Department. Now you're even seeing the World Health Organization uh, acknowledge that there's still the very real possibility that the, uh, the Wuhan lab was the source of this pandemic. So, you know, it, it seems like what actually happened was that um, there was a lot of people who may have just been waiting for the political winds to shift in a certain way, uh, who may have been waiting for, you know, the right alignment of, uh, of personnel and administration to admit that this is a very real possibility. And, and what's hopeful is that, you know, even as, as, dishonest, as dishonest and unfair as that tactic may have been, 
that we may see increasing moves towards towards discovering whether or not this pandemic did in fact emerge from that lab. It's an amazing thing. And we're not talking about lightweight saying this. We've got the former CDC director, the former ODNI director, several people. And I think one of the the reasons is the virus has characteristics that could not have evolved in nature as fast as we know what we know about where the COVID virus was in 2018, 2019. So there's a specificity why the experts think this. We may never know the answer. But we weren't even allowed to ask the question for a period of time. And I think that censorship probably has proven to be detrimental to the public debate. Uh, Helen, Corey, you asked how much um, I think, uh, Helen, you asked, uh, how can you navigate to the podcast? I sent everybody on here. I hope I typoed, uh, didn't typo the link. If you ever want to listen to any of our podcasts, there's a permanent book link. You can bookmark, you can book, bookmark the link, click in it. You can get all of our great podcasts. I do one. Uh, Gina Loudon does one. Cheryl Atkinson does one. Jenna Ellis, the lawyer who you saw during the uh, election dispute, is here now doing a daily podcast. So have at it. That's the link. You'll always find us. And I hope that's helpful. Uh, thank you for asking a question that benefits so many people on here, Helen. I think you had a, another question. And I know Daniel can answer this because he just wrote a story about it. Helen Corey asks, how much U.S. money went to the Wuhan lab with Fauci's OK? Tell us the link. Money goes from NIH to an American researcher to the Wuhan lab. I think it was $3 million, But see, you tell us more, Daniel. You know a lot more about it. Yeah, I think it was around that. Well, there, there was um, uh, the, the grants did come from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and a, a, a significant chunk of them from the uh, uh, Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. And the, the grants in question uh, that we've been tracking over the past year or so uh, went through a U.S. Uh, nonprofit, a biomedical nonprofit called uh, EcoHealth Alliance. That's it. And so they've been, you know, running, uh, uh, you know, experiments and, and research into pandemics and coronaviruses for years. And what they ended up doing was sending a large amount of those grants. I think it was uh, it may have been as, as little as uh, 750,000 could have been a good bit more than that uh, to the Wuhan lab to perform their own set of coronavirus experiments. And one thing that we've been, uh, you know, really struggling to, to, to get a beat on and, and doing a lot of footwork trying to track down is the, just what uh, the expanse of those experiments were that were being funded by taxpayer dollars. There's been concerns voiced by, you know, a number of uh, prominent voices in the, the epidemiology community and the medical community that there may have been what's known as gain-of-function research being performed at the Wuhan lab. That's where uh, viruses are, are subject to uh, experiments that increase their pathogenicity and their transmissibility uh, so that scientists can you know, determine how infectious they might be in a nightmare pandemic scenario. So there, there, there are major questions unanswered about the extent of those experiments and whether or not they did in fact uh, enhance or, or improve upon in some way a coronavirus uh, that maybe uh, possibly leaked from the lab at some point. A little breaking news. If you're a football fan and you decided we were more fun than the NFL draft, the first draft has been made. And the Jacksonville Jaguars did, in fact, pick Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. A little interlude of breaking for anyone who's a football news fan. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Robert Lewis asked the very question, Daniel, that you just uh, asked the question you very just answered. Please explain the gain of function research. Really helpful. Good question, Robert. You always bring great questions to these things. I love it. 
Dan Holmes. If Cuomo did not kill as many of the elderly that he is responsible for, for New York would not have lost one U.S. representative. That's interesting math because <laughs> they were just 80 short. So you might be onto something here. Oh, Dan, well, I don't know if we can... I don't know if the timing's right. The census was kind of wrapping up, but you might be onto something. I don't know, Daniel. I don't know if you want to add to that. We'll file. We'll file some FOIAs and see. That could very well be a grim consequence of, of that uh, <laughs> those terrible policies he made. I never. I never gave it any thought. Yeah, that's a great one. I love it. And there may, there's probably some honest to god truth to it, but it's also worth laughing to think about. Cuomo may have hurt his entire state by increasing the death rate in uh, in nursing homes. Really, something to think about there. Uh, David Muller, the first nursing home incident was here in Washington a month before Cuomo. That's right. There was this terrible outbreak outside of Seattle. Um, the 50-year-old who entered that facility was never in China, never identified. The owner of that nursing home chain is a wealthy Republican donor. Any investigative follow-up on why this particular facility was ground zero? That's funny. I've asked a lot about that facility, and one of the things that I'm beginning to hear, and I think you may have seen this earlier. I think that was late January, early February, if I right. remember correctly. There are now been efforts in King County near Seattle, belief that some people were symptomatic with COVID-19 as far back as December. And so it may have been spreading among a healthier population of adults. And then when the ground zero patient walks in to you know, the most devastated population, it takes off. I haven't heard much recently, but that was the explanation given to us, I think, in April or May last year. Right. Daniel, any, anything more you can shed the light on that King County nursing home? I think it was 60 or 70 deaths very early on there, and I think David had a great recollection about that. Yeah, I remember that was a, um, you know, that was a sort of a major signifier of things to come that, that uh, you know, at the time, I mean, it was something astronomically high. It was like 70% of deaths in the entire state of Washington were, were in nursing homes, and most of them were in that one nursing home. And, and yeah. you kind of see the, the shape of the pandemic taking place uh, where, where you know, the, the, it was clear that nursing homes were going to be a significant target for this virus. Now, you know, we, we've done some research into, you know, in some reporting, most of it last year, um, regarding the, the earliest cases, and in particular, how early COVID may have shown up in the U.S. Because like you said, there, there are reports of potential uh, symptomatic cases as early as December. Uh, and one thing that, that I've been trying to get a beat on and some other reporters are trying, trying to get a beat on over the past year is, you know, how the virus could have arrived so early um, and been spreading apparently, you know, unencumbered throughout the U.S., uh, without the kinds of devastating consequences that have been predicted, you know, over the past year, if, if, if that were allowed to happen. So, you know, the, 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 the earliest cases uh, on, the, on the West Coast and California and Seattle and Oregon that were kind of driving a lot of the coverage back then, those do deserve significantly more scrutiny and, and, and to, to kind of get, a, get a, an idea of where the pandemic launched in the country and, more importantly, when it first began. Yeah, and I think also... Uh, David, the thing I've heard most about the King County, uh, the nursing home in that vicinity there, was that it was the warning sign that what Cuomo was about to do, Whitmer was about to do, New Jersey, Murphy was about to do, was probably wrong-headed because we saw one entrant wipe out a half or three-quarters of a nursing home population, and yet no one seemed to connect the dots from a policy perspective. And I just look at that now as that was a perfect opportune learning moment that our public health officials failed to synthesize 
and weaponize, when I say weaponize in a good way, get it out to the public and say, hey, guys, let's lock down these nursing homes. This is the problem. It took us about four or five months, really, to learn from that, that thing. Really good question there. Thank you. Michelle McCown, do you think that the incidence of COVID has been overstated on death certificates? Da- uh, Daniel, what do you think? You know, I, I think that, that there's a distinct possibility of that simply because, as we mentioned earlier, the tests that are so often used to determine COVID-19 are, are in so many cases uh, way more sensitive than they need to be. So if you're taking a test on, you know, on a dead body or you're taking a test on a sick patient before they die um, and you're, you're registering COVID uh, where none exists, right. you're, you're just going to have much higher incidences of, of misdiagnosed COVID on death certificates. And that wouldn't surprise me if that is a, a, a big chunk of a lot of the deaths that have been attributed to COVID is, is actually just the test finding it where it doesn't exist or where maybe they had an infection and they didn't know it a few months before, or maybe they just you know turned up a scrap of viral DNA from somewhere else. I would imagine that that's a, a, a large share of deaths. And again, that's the sort of thing that just with the sheer amount of data and documents and footwork that's going to need uh, to take place to get all that information in one place, that's something that's going to play out in the coming months and years to determine, you know, not just the scope of the pandemic, but, but how much of it was, you know, actually attributable to the virus itself. Yeah, there's going to be a significant mortality actuarial exercise that's going to have to happen if we're going to learn from this. Um, I think a second part of this really great question is, given what we now know about the um, PCR tests and also the false positives of the instant tests, which, you know, there were warnings going back to November on that, the total number of cases of people who actually had COVID may have been much higher than actually were. And there's two consequences of that. One is, we weren't as sick a nation as we thought we were. The second thing is the mortality rate from people who did have it might be more potent. This might be a three or four percenter um, if we were overestimating the number of people who had, you know, took the swab and really didn't have symptoms. It might have been a, a false positive or uh, there. And I know many people that took the test, the instant test, one day and the next day, and they were positive one day and the next day. And viruses don't usually last that short a period of time. Right. So I think we're going to learn a lot. Do you think? the actual total number of cases in America could go down a little bit as well? You know, I, I've, I've given a lot of thought to that because, like you said, there's, there's two possibilities. One is that, uh, you know, the, the actual number of infections in the country is much higher than we know, in right. which case the, the virus is, uh, is much less lethal than was initially feared. Or the, the number of false positives in the country is actually very high, in which case, uh, you know, the, the, the actual killing percentage rate of the virus is a lot higher than we think it is now. So those yeah. seem to be the two possibilities. My gut feeling based upon, you know, all I've researched and all I've reported on over the past year is that the the number of infections is actually much higher than we know. That uh, just like with influenza, the, the actual number of confirmed cases of the virus uh, is only a small fraction of what is actually transmitted throughout the country in any given year. And that was a, a sentiment that was shared by former CDC director Robert Redfield last year. He had right. uh, advanced that theory as much. He estimated, I think it was in 
uh, last summer, July or August, that the true number of infections at that time could have been 10 times as high as the recorded number of cases. So uh, my gut is that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see in the months and years ahead that uh, more data shows that there was a, a hugely larger number of infections than what's currently recorded in the CDC numbers or the um, uh, Johns Hopkins numbers, and that you know the virus uh, in the at the end of the day is uh, is is a lot less uh, deadly than was feared a year ago. Yeah, really, really fascinating uh, to figure out which way that number is going to move uh, as as history looks back. It seems like two years from now we'll probably really know the scope of this. It seems like, you know, from the public health experts, I say we're at the backside of it. They believe that that remains true. You know, there's a year and a half to 18 months of really digging in and then coming to uh, a thing. There's been some really great questions. My gosh, I, 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 I want to get to all of them because they're so smart. Uh, Mary Harsinski asked a really great question. What needs to happen for us, meaning all of us Americans, to trust these giant bureaucracies like the CDC? It seems like most every bureaucracy involved with COVID let us down, failed us. Um, Daniel, do these agencies even realize how they look to the American public? And is the possibility for reform, self-inflection points uh, real? Or do these bureaucracies think they did a really great job under tough circumstances? You know, I, I haven't heard uh, any any major uh, bureaucrats or, or agency officials or leaders admit that they got anything particularly wrong about this pandemic over the past year. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's very clear that they, they did get a lot of stuff wrong, uh, some of it minor, some of it major. And I haven't heard any mea culpas coming out from, from anybody, uh, uh, you know, at the top or even mid-level, um, you know, potentially understandably, because they'd likely be teeing themselves up to, to lose their jobs if that happened. But without that sort of humility and reflection and admittance that there were serious mistakes that were made, uh, I, I don't know what trust looks like for those agencies in the future. And, you know, they can even have a, a sort of arguable out by saying, you know, we made some mistakes. We didn't make the right calls in some places, but we didn't know what was happening in February and March and April and, and May of 2020. So we did the best we could. But even that sort of, uh, you know, humility doesn't seem to be forthcoming. So the, the, the trust that you want to have in these agencies, you know, I'm just not sure if or, or when it will return. It's funny, when I did my investigative stories on Anthony Fauci back in the early 2000s, uh, and you know, some of these stories were that eight, uh, foster children in New York City had been used to test AIDS drugs without parental uh, guidance and without even an individual advocate for each patient. Right. Big scandal at the time. There was a whistleblower, a woman who died in an AIDS experiment. Uh, the whistleblower got fired by Fauci, had to be reinstated. He got reprimanded. Uh, we learned that NIH scientists were inventing capabilities at taxpayer expense, drugs, drug components, uh, treatments, and then they were getting put on the, um, uh, the uh, patents for royalties. So we paid for it. They got the money for it. People were really uh, shocked. And Anthony Fauci didn't seem to have any remorse for any of the things he did. And one of his colleagues um, uh, at the time said to me, I, I think it was on the records I remember in a story, uh, John, if you're looking for humility from Anthony Fauci, you're going to be spending a long time looking for it. I just don't think, you know, we, we've never seen any humility from him in this. And, and, and I think that one of the things you learn about great scientists and doctors is they're trained to be confident because, you know, 
takes a lot of guts to cut someone's brain open or to go into the heart, but it sometimes makes for bad self-inflection points. And I think what's going to have to happen is someone other than the scientists, like a blue ribbon panel, someone's going to have to go back and force the inflection, even if the scientists and doctors don't want to do it. Be very interesting to see, Daniel, if that uh, happens. This is a great question from Ellen O'Brien, because I know of an FBI agent who I uh, uh, got sick with COVID and his wife was able to get her ivermectin and he lost his symptoms within 12, 24 hours. And, you know, he's in a high risk class. I'm told so it's very good. Are you tracking reports? Ellen O'Brien says of successful therapeutic treatment of COVID with uh, ivermectin protocol, Dr. Pierre, Corey and others like that, HCQ, hydrogen, uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, and other protocols like that, uh, that were disregarded by the U.S. and who early on, you know, we still are only at a, the public dialogue is vaccine or die, right? Right. But the truth of the matter is there has to be interdictories that can come in and treat people before a vaccine because we can't lock down every time this happens. Have those mid-treatments come in? I mean, Regeneron seems to be better than the other one that Fauci touted for a while. Um, are we beginning to understand that there were intermediary treatments that didn't that could help have helped us all before a vaccine? Yeah, I think so. And you know, the 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 thing that we see throughout history is that you know scientific discovery, particularly life saving scientific discovery, never puts all its eggs in one basket. I mean, uh, you know, if uh, accepting you know really kind of slam dunk uh, uh, cures like the smallpox vaccine, there's usually a lot of approaches that you can take to mitigate. Uh, certain viruses and diseases, and I, I think we're seeing that with COVID, and I think that's going to grow. Uh, you know, we've um, we've uh, spoke to a um, a, a prominent uh, Harvard epidemiologist named Dr. Harvey Risch several times over the past year, uh, who who has done great work examining the potential of HCQ uh, to help mitigate the worst effects of uh, of COVID nineteen, and he's right. very confident that in the right settings, uh, which I believe is outpatient, uh, low risk. That HGQ has, uh, you know, a, a pretty compelling effect at uh, obviating the worst symptoms and outcomes of COVID nineteen, and I think we're seeing that also with ivermectin. That that there's, you know, they're sort of on the on the tail end of this when maybe uh, cooler heads are starting to prevail a little more. Uh, you are seeing more uh, interest in, you know, the what what isn't necessarily the the sort of uh, you know dazzling, admittedly very impressive. A vaccine program that the federal government rolled out over the past year, but nevertheless, uh, medicines like that that could have uh, sort of game-changing effects for a lot of people. So uh, we are tracking that, and we're fo- we followed that closely over the past year, and we are keeping up with it to make sure that uh, that we're covering it as it comes up. The uh, one of the things that you learn too is that big pharma often likes the big, expensive drugs and the vaccines because they have big dollars attached to them, and sometimes right. there are cheaper more readily available, long-term health things that could have been. And I think that's going to be another significant um, uh, armchair quarterback we're going to have to do. We're going to have to look at why didn't we spend more time looking at intermediary treatments and trying things. Uh, uh, Heck, we had nothing to lose, right, Uh, as this was spreading so quickly. And I don't think the mentality was there for that. Um, Becky M., you have such a great team. Thank you for all the great journalism we get from you, Just the News. Becky, thank you so much. That's a very kind comment. Sheila has, I think, an ancillary question to go with that. Sheila Kumbis, I believe it is, or Coombs. John and Daniel, on the subject of COVID or any other news, 
What news sources do you trust besides JTN? Any liberal sources for folks who want to hear multiple perspectives without the propaganda? You want to take the first crack at that one, Daniel? Uh, let me let me go through my Rolodex here and figure out which uh, <laughs> which ones. You know, I mean, it's to 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 read news with a critical eye these days is to. You know, you don't want to cancel out any one major news source. Um, you know, I use to, to get coverage. I, I use the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, uh, internationally, the Daily Mail, of course. Uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, uh, outlets that, that offer, you know, really, in a lot of ways, good coverage. Uh, what you have to do is is you have to approach them with a critical eye um, and and read not just what they're reporting, but what they're not reporting. And really what it comes to be is kind of sort of a, a question of asking, you know, uh, what do they leave out? Who do they not talk to? Um, you know, sort of once you're aware of, of kind of the pervasive bias of, of a lot of, of reporters in the mainstream media, you can you can actually read the that content and that reportage pretty safely, um, and and not right. be kind of uh, uh, swayed by what may be misleading coverage. So that's that's kind of my approach. I really love that answer. I can't say it better than that. I read a lot, and then we try to assess it. And you know, one of the things, the only difference that I you know we've tried to create a culture here, which is we're never going to try to make up your mind for you. Uh, we're going to give you the facts. You've got the digging tool. You click on that. You can go make up your own mind. There are a lot of these news organizations that 20 years ago did the same thing, but today they're written, their stories are written to make up your mind. And I, and I was doing an exercise this morning that was just fun for therapy, which is I took Trump's first State of the Union speech and Biden's first State of the Union speech or the you know, speech of the joint session of Congress. And the word phrases, the word twists in the New York Times and Washington Post could not have been more different. Every pejorative connotation you can imagine was assigned to Trump's speech and every uh, positive, uh, glowing, oh my God, the most memorable line coverage was in the Biden speech. And I think that's one of the buyer beware things. As you're reading, when you see that journalist go beyond, hey, I'm giving you the facts to, I love this guy or you should love this guy. That's your warning. You got to read a lot. You got to be discerning. And I think that the make up your mind mentality of the mainstream press is harming them. And I think we're, do, we're a back to the future project. We're doing journalism the way it was done 20 years ago. Right. We're just delivering it with all the cool ways. But uh, great questions from there. And Dan couldn't, Daniel couldn't advance a bit better. I couldn't think of a better one. All right, we'll get to a couple more because I know you probably want to check out the NFL draft or your favorite show tonight. David Muller, has China ever provided patient zero genome sequences? I don't think I've heard that. Have you no. seen any evidence yet? I think that would be that would have been a, a a pretty big headline grammar if they had. I know they they sequenced the virus I think in January and released that uh, you know after some pressure, but I don't know if there's ever been a, a, a patient zero rundown in that effect. No. Yeah, there's an interesting follow up that David says, which is scripts indicated uh, that China gave them something that proved the virus was not created in a lab setting. Why would science trust that? That's a great question. We're going to debate that for a while. We'll get some more facts, but we may never fully solve that is what I hear. Um, all right. Robert Lewis has a, an assignment for us. Yeah, this is good. Could JTN check with the BC, British Columbia, Canada, government about a new double variant, marriage of two variants from India uh, that they are very worried about, different from the one in India? Uh, sounds like we could do some reporting and, and, and try to put that on just the news. We'll add that to the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah sounds good. Dan Holmes, uh, let's see here, follow the media of COVID-related death certificates 
Absolutely, he's right about this. There were incentives for funerals and doctors and hospitals to declare a death. COVID-related with or from COVID meant the same thing when it came to dollars. So that's a great perception from Dan. Absolutely. Um, uh, Helen Corey has an observation. School children are affected greatly by stay-at-home orders. Amen to that. That is an irrefutable consequence. The fallout of not teaching our children in schools when science said you could probably is going to be spelt for three, four, five years, maybe an entire generation. Yep. Really, really great point there. Um, Elbin Mustafa, has any link been found of military athletics uh, being infected during the 2019 military world games in Wuhan? I don't know, but we're going to add that to a story checklist. I think. Yeah, I don't know. If it went back that far, that would be that would be a heck that would of be a, news. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be news. Uh, uh, Becky M. I've heard that pharmacists won't fill prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine if it's intended for treatment of COVID-19. Many states have imposed that. Not all, uh, but many states have imposed that. Right. And we'll have to go back later and find out whether taking the power from a doctor was the right thing. We don't know. Uh, let's see if we can get a couple more in here. Um, uh, bum, 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 bum. Sh- uh, Sherry Crosby, how early will the med the meds be needed in treatments when does do we do we have a timetable from symptomatic presentation to degradation of a patient where the early intervention meds seem to work daniel is it two days three days four days any any thought on that yeah the the research that i uh surveyed over the past year uh you know as far as at least hcq goes uh, in combination with um, uh, maybe zinc and a few other types of medicines, uh, indicates that it has to be pretty early. I think um, uh, maybe just uh, before or just after symptom onset. Uh, so it is something that would uh, that would have to occur. I think uh, uh, pretty early on in the process to have a measurable effect. And again, that is uh, the research has been uh, mostly on low risk patients at this point. Yeah, great yeah. point. We're gonna, we're gonna, that's another one of those things we're going to learn a lot more. And trust me, Daniel Payne's on this uh, like a fly on pie, and he's just going to keep giving us great journalism. We're so lucky. A couple quick ones. BHH has a non-COVID question, but it's a good question. I love this one. I'll take this one. When are we going to get the app for just the news? I asked my developer that this morning. We're getting closer. Unfortunately, the iOS code base changed a little bit, so we were pretty close to launch, and some of the things kind of got broken by that. We're pretty close to getting out. I wouldn't be surprised if we're in the next two to three weeks on that. We will give all of you and the subscriber club, the VIP club, early notice. You'll be the first people to download the app. And thank you. Thank you for that. Um, bum, 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 bum. Let's go. Uh, David Muller, I want to thank both of you for JTN. I get more real news from your site than a year of reading the Washington Post. Thank you, David. Very sweet. We thank try hard, much. but every day we come in. And, you know, Daniel and I and everyone else on the team, we want to earn your trust every day. We may mess up from time to time, but we're in it to try to earn your trust because you're what matters. And I appreciate that so much. And Sheila Combs has the final say of the night. The last comment. Here we go. Appreciate your journalistic principles. Have a blessed evening. You too, Sheila. And we appreciate your support, everyone on this call. We'll be back next month with a new session. And I want to do something fun. As you're leaving, if you have an idea 
for what you like the next subject topic to be. Is there a newsmaker you want me to bring in, a different reporter? Bring Daniel back. I could bring Daniel back and listen to him all night long. <laughs> um, uh, give us some ideas for your next session. And JB and I will stay on as you're uh, signing off. We'll watch those comments and we'll try to pick one of those that matter most to you. So that next month when we join uh, before Memorial Day, we could have uh, the sort of topic you want to have. It's really great. Again, God bless you tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. Daniel, great job as always. I love reading you every morning when I wake up, and I know lots of other people do. So congratulations. Thank you for having me. This is great to be here. Thank you, folks, for showing up. I had a great time. Amen. All right. Everyone, have a blessed night. I'm going to stay online. You guys log off for a couple seconds. I want to watch these ideas come in. Socialism, Cheryl Atkinson. Oh, man, what great ideas. They're coming in faster than I can read them. Thank you, Durham. I just saw one on John Durham, my favorite prosecutor who hasn't prosecuted. We'll get to all of them next time. <laughs> God bless you guys. Daniel, good night. We'll see everybody next time. Take care, time. John. Bye now. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the John Solomon Reports podcast. For more, you can visit us at www.justthenews.com.